so before we read in Romans 8, though, I want to tell you a little story of a, um, a Michigan factory worker. Does anyone know a Michigan factory worker? No. Does anyone know anyone from Michigan? Wow. Okay. It's way north. It's really cold right now. Um, so this Michigan factory worker that I was reading about, he, you know, working in the factory did not make a ton of money. He made about $10,000 a year, which I don't know what you have context for, but that's not enough to really live on much of anything. This was, you know, 30 years ago, but still, it's not that much money. And he came to this knowledge that he had a uh, heir, or he was unknowingly an heir to a half a million dollars. Uh, he, when located by an investigator some years after his benefactor's death, the worker explained that he had neither returned home nor kept in touch with his family for 24 years. Okay? So he completely separated from his family, which is why he didn't know about this. The investigator who located him estimates there's about $40 billion in inheritance lying unclaimed in this country alone for this Michigan factory worker. Are you... As a, as a Christian, unaware of your status as an heir of God through Christ. This story of the Michigan factory worker, I tell this really short story, true story, that he, for 24 years, worked in a factory, made $10,000 a year, had no clue what was actually He didn't know he was an heir. He didn't know that he had billions of dollars to his name. Do you imagine the difference in the way that he probably carried himself after this day? Right? The way he thought about himself. The same is true of us. If we don't understand that you and I are heirs of God, and as the scripture today is going to say, co-heirs with Christ, and we own in that inheritance way more than $40 billion. But most of us walk around like the $10,000 factory worker. We don't know whose we are or what we have or what's being given or will be given to us as an inheritance. So I tell you that story tonight. Um, that you may be sitting in here failing to receive the gifts your father is offering to you. And one of the reasons you're failing to receive those gifts is because you have a, or not you, but sin has a stranglehold on you and your life. You have chosen the $10,000 in the factory job over your inheritance as a son of God. And you have chosen your sin. So, as we look at Romans 8 tonight, we're going to see two different things. One, what we just talked about, that the Spirit, all of chapter 8 is about the Holy Spirit. I don't know, if, uh, I'm trying to remember if Garrison said this last week, but Romans 7 and Romans 8 is one experience all at the same time for the believer. You and I live in a constant Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 7, Romans 8. If you remember Romans 7, what was it? Work really hard, work really hard, keep the law, I keep doing what I want to do, I keep doing, I keep, I, 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 I'm trying! Romans 8 is, no, 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 life in the Spirit. 
freedom, liberation, and the spirit. We talked about that last week, right? The first line that Paul gives us in Romans 8 is what? Y'all said it five times last week. Does anyone remember? Yes. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, those in Christ Jesus have the spirit of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit, and that spirit testifies to your heart that there is now no condemnation. You are free from the law of sin and death. And that's what Romans 8 is trying to get us to understand, that as we grow that big word, big theology word is sanctification. But as you grow in holiness, it's not through, I have to be better, I have to do good, I have to try harder. That's Romans 7. That's the weight of the law, trying to live up to that standard. Romans 8 is, no, 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 no. Christ has already done that for you. Your motivation is no longer, I have to keep the law perfectly. Your motivation now is grace, overwhelming grace has been placed on you. Out of that grace, now I live and I serve and I keep the law. Motivation is completely different. The mindset is completely different. Okay? So we're going to look at how the Spirit helps us to put to death sin in our lives. And then the second, how the Spirit assures us of our suffering. So I'm going to guess that for everyone in the room, you probably struggle with both of these things. You probably are struggling with putting sin to death in your life, if you have any of the experience that I have. And you probably struggle at different seasons in your life of assurance. Am I really his? Am I saved? How do I know that? So we're going to look at both those things tonight. So the point, number one, is the Spirit helps to put to death sin in our lives. So let's look at Romans 8, starting in verse 12. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? So he uses this uh, phrase first. He says, we are debtors. What's a debtor? Can someone tell me? What's a debtor? You owe someone a debt, right? Pretty simple. You are a debtor, meaning you owe someone a debt. Is anyone a debtor right now? You, you should all raise your hand right now. This is a trick question. <laughs> right? We just said we're all debtors, right? <clears throat> but we're not debtors to what? What does he say? What? Our sin, right? We're no longer debtors to our flesh, to our sin, to that law. We're no longer debtors to that. So if he's saying we are debtors, but we're not debtors to that, then who are we debtors to? <clears throat> Who's done something for you in which now you have a debt towards them? God, right? What has God done? He has sent his son in your place. To live perfectly under that law from Romans 7 where we get this mix up of trying to, trying to, trying to. Jesus did it. We don't have to live there anymore. Now we live in the grace of what Christ has done for us. The motivation again is so different. 
So we're debtors. What is Paul referring to? He's making mention of the section before this. In verse 10 and 11, right before this, it says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You have been risen from the dead. I know we don't think in these terms, but spiritually speaking, at one point in time in your life, you were dead. Incapable of doing anything to get life. And now, the spirit of the living God dwells in you. Because of what Christ has done. So when I say we are debtors, we're debtors to that. We're debtors to what God has done in us. What he's done in Jesus, we're debtors to that. He has been perfect, Jesus, to the law on our behalf. He has taken the punishment for our sin and the wrath of God. He defeated sin and death at his resurrection. Therefore, we, as I said, have been raised with him. We've been given life from death. And he has come to dwell in us through his Holy Spirit. So the motivation is this. He says we're debtors. It's not the same kind of debt that you would feel shame and guilt from. The debt is the gospel. The debt is that you and I have been ransomed. Because here's what is true. Is that you don't own your life if you're God's. You don't. And what we talked about a couple weeks ago is actually... We don't own our life at all. Because we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, right? So if you sit in this room and you have put faith in Jesus, your life is not your own. You may live like that. You may tell yourself that. But it's not. Because at the cross, he ransomed you. What did he do? He purchased you with his blood. You are his now. That doesn't mean like, oh, I just get some benefits and I don't have to do anything, right? That's why Paul says debtors here. We just sang, what do I have to give a king other than to say, hallelujah, right? And that heart posture is this, that we don't have anything really to give to a king other than our full lives and service. For what he's done for us. The motivation is the gospel. How do we give back to God? We live lives by the spirit and we put to death the flesh. The spirit helps us to do an impossible task without him. He empowers us to put to death the flesh and live by the spirit. Now you may be asking, what does that even mean, Andrew? You're talking in terms that I have no clue what you're talking about. You're saying something about flesh and spirit, and I, those are not terms I'm familiar with. I want to give some context for that. So I think the best place for this is Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Um, Galatians 5, 16 through 24 is a very similar section to Romans 8. And it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Here's what it's saying. You can't li live a spirit-filled life and a flesh-filled life at the same time. You can't do it. You can't, as the saying goes, have your cake and eat it too. You have to do one or the other. They're against each other. They're opposed to each other. And uh, it goes on in verse 18. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We've already talked about that, right? We're not under the law anymore. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's your list. When I say works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh we need to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a long list and this isn't the whole list, right? But when we say deeds of the flesh, this is what Paul is listing out for us. There's a lot of things that fall underneath a lot of these categories that I just read, right? But what, what's on the other side? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Y'all know this, right? So when we talk about deeds of the flesh, we can also talk about fruit of the Spirit or deeds, actions of the Spirit. If you are being led by the Spirit, you will be growing in these things. It's literally the fruit of the Spirit inside of you. Those things are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. So my question tonight is, of those two lists, where do you see your deeds falling? Are you living lives that are filled with the Spirit and listening and walking in and seeing this fruit? Or are you seeing the other list more? Now, listen, I know none of us in this room are perfect. I know we're going to struggle with this other list, and that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, are we serious about walking in the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Paul says, in light of grace we have received, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This put to death phrase that he talks about here is very violent in total. It's not like, yeah, like, you know, every now and then, like, when I slap on the wrist, that's sin, right? It's not, it's, it's not like that that he's talking about here. He's letting what he's the word put to death. It's violent. It is total. Do you see your sin in your life that way? I give this example a lot. Some of you have heard this from me before. I think a great picture for this is if you were to walk into the cage with a lion. Close the door, and then all of a sudden, you're like, all right, I'm in the corner, he's over there, we're good, I feel fine, I feel safe. Like, we're good right now, it's okay. What are, what are you thinking on the outside of the cage? Like, you idiot. At some point in time, that lion that's sitting over there in that corner, it has a natural instinct. And its natural instinct is to devour you. Sin is the same way. 
And way too often we choose to get in the cage, maybe even get a little closer, move around, work, we feel safe, we play with the lion. And that lion is seeking to devour you. We are way too casual with our sin. How are you currently playing with your sin? Four years ago, uh, we had a refresh, maybe five years ago now, four years, five years ago. And he started the night and he asked, what's your favorite sin? Some of you remember that. I thought it was a brilliant question. What's your favorite sin? He didn't like skirt around like, oh, maybe you guys have some sin. He's, no, he's like, I know in this room you guys have favorite sins. The ones that you play around with, you feel like it's okay, you have under control, it's totally okay. If someone were to ask you about it, you may even get defensive. Like, it's fine, I have, I, it's fine, I've got it, I've got it. That sin is the lion. And at some point in time, you don't got it. The sooner you realize that, and you start to live in the spirit instead of playing around with the sin in your life, the better it will be for you. How are you playing games with your sin instead of putting it to death? God and believers each have a role in this. God tells us here that his spirit will give us power over our sin. When we're fighting against it, when we're trying to put it to death, God is telling us that the spirit that lives inside of you, that raised Christ from the dead, will give you power over that sin. But you also must take an active role in battling your sin. This does not mean that you just come and you're like, I'm just going to pray about it. And then right after I'm done praying, I'm going to walk around my door and continue to do the things that I was doing before. That's not how it works. Yes, pray about it. But you have an active role in the sin in your life. So take those two together, the spirits in your role, and infuse them and use that to put to death the flesh. And live by the Spirit. So more and more of the fruit that we just talked about, the fruit of the Spirit might be shown in your life. That you would become a person of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness. Who doesn't want to be that person? But that person is someone that shows fruits of the Spirit. Those are gifts of the Spirit. Those are the people that live in the Spirit. So the second point for tonight, real quick, is the Spirit assures us also of our adoption. So we look in verse 14 here. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For did you not receive the Spirit of, or you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. And as children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. We have received the Holy Spirit adoption as sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives works as a witness and an assurance to us. For those of you in here that really listen to me here, if you have ever questioned, am I a believer? You have no further to look than is the Spirit working out the fruit that we just talked about in our life? Do I see that? I'm not saying you live perfect lives. I'm not saying you don't struggle with sin. I'm saying, do you see the Spirit working out its fruit in your life? Or do you see yourself only in the category of the deeds of the flesh? If you struggle with assurance, it is saying here that the Spirit, spirit bears witness to your spirit that you are a child. It's pretty straightforward. If you have the Spirit of God, you're a child of God. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's a reminder. So we, he uses this term adoption here. Why does Paul use this term? So when someone was adopted, especially in this period of time in, in um, the Roman uh, time period, the moment adoption occurs, a couple things immediately become true of that person. First, their old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, they got a new name and were instantly heirs to all the father had. Third, this new father became instantly liable for all their actions, meaning they would have the fall for the child's actions. And fourth, the new son also had obligations to honor and please his father. Immediately when adoption happens, those things are true of us as well. So I'll put them in these categories for you. Privileges of being a child of God adopted into his family. First, you gain security. There is a security in knowing that your father loves you. It's not one of those relationships like employees and an employer or a coach and a player. Now this is a parent and child relationship. You have the security to know no matter what, he will always look at you and go, they're my child. Where am I to go? What am I to think? What am I to lead them to? I would never. They're gonna be my child always. There's a security in that for you. The second thing is there's an authority you are moved about in the world. You can move about in the world, sorry, knowing that it all belongs to your father. That's Keller. Think about this. You have authority because your father is the creator of the universe. We should walk with confidence that every single space is his. Everything we see is his. There is an authority that comes as a child of that king, of that father. The third thing is intimacy. As we're adopted, we gain intimacy with God. It's the beautiful phrase here that people know. He cries out, Abba, Father. Not just Father, but Abba, Father. You can translate that Abba phrase in a very deeply intimate name like we would use today instead of calling 
your dad by your first name, you call them dad. You call them Papa, or you call them Pops, or you call them whatever, right? There's a special name for them, a deep emotional connection to an individual. That is the same thing is true here. The fourth thing is assurance. We just talked about this. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We gain assurance of whose we are. The fifth thing is <clears throat> inheritance. He calls you and I heirs, co-heirs of Christ. An heir is one that got most of the inheritance, which is me and you. Think about this. When he calls you and I co-heir with Christ, it means that everything that is Christ is actually yours as well. That's what a co-heir means. That's the example we talked about at the very beginning of that story. How much more that you have to your name than you ever actually act or believe in. The last two are discipline and family likeness, and this draws us to the very last verse. So now that we know we've been brought into a family, what's the legacy of this family? Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, comma, and this is the part no one ever wants to quote, Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, if we're an heir of Christ, if we're an heir of God, that comma is really important. Because some of us might be just be like, oh, that's amazing. That means great life. I get all this stuff. It's awesome. But that comma says, well, actually, hold on. Provided that you suffer with him, that you may also be glorified with him. What is the way of God's children in this world? Suffering. The person that we follow endured suffering. Why? Because the world did not want to hear his message. They did not agree with it, and they were opposed to it. That's the Jesus that you follow. It was the same way for his 12 disciples. All uh, 11 of them were murdered, martyred. The only one that wasn't was dipped in burning oil and put on an island. Those were his 12 disciples. And it has been the way of the church for the last 2,000 years. Now, I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to make you run away in fear. I tell you that because the world out there is not going to enjoy the way that you choose to live life and the things that you value if you're following Jesus. And I'm not talking about suffering outside just because we live in a sinful world. I'm talking about suffering that will come in the face of persecution. And your generation, maybe more than any in this country, is going to experience this. Because it's happening fast. We must suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the beauty. Christ suffered and was glorified. This is not the end. This story is not the end. Your time on this earth is short. 
suffering for this short time is nothing compared to the glory that you will see. This is more than just suffering. Everyone's experience being part of the sinful world. This is suffering for that persecution, but it's worth it. We're going to talk about this next week. We, become, we suffer to become like him. So while we're here, we should expect and find purpose in it. As we suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus, we grow in conformity to his character and likeness. How do we come, become like Jesus? We suffer with him. Again, I know this is hard. And I know that most people don't want to talk about this in the Bible, but this is over and over again repeated. Sharing in his sufferings. Sharing in his sufferings. That we may become like him. So next week, we're going to pick up with this thought, though. Okay, but is it worth it? Is it worth it to endure suffering? I'm going to just read verse 18 to finish. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we're going to talk about that glory and why it's not. It's, it's worth it. And I hope you see it as worth it next week. All right, let me pray.